This is Louis. Yeah. Hi, Louis. Uh, thanks for having us on. Uh, nope. We know you're a busy man, so uh, we appreciate it. No problem at all. Should we crack into the questions? Absolutely. It's up to you, I'll leave. I'm totally at your disposal. So, Paul, could you please give us an insight into your childhood and what led you to take an interest in sports, and particularly cycling? Well, uh, my first, I think, living memory is of my father, Christy Kimmage, uh, racing in the Phoenix Park. I'm guessing I was about three or four years old, and I was standing at the side of the main road in the Phoenix Park, and I saw this guy fly over the crowd and land on a big heap, and I remember peering through the legs and running excitedly to my mother and telling him that, or telling her that my father had just... Uh, was lying in a heap on the grass. So I remember that uh, that quite vividly. So I grew up, I suppose, with uh, with my dad cycling and um, and I suppose wanting to be a cyclist. I played some other sports. I played a bit of soccer uh, at school. Um, but really, from uh, I guess from the moment I was born, that was the kind of my passion in life was going to be cycling. Yeah. Cool. Um... So what did your experience as an amateur cyclist teach you? And what were some personal highlights from your career? Well, it's an interesting question. I, I guess in terms of lessons, you don't really look back in it or reflect in it as, as being taught lessons. I guess life teaches you, you lessons. Um, I mean, uh, my son, my youngest boy, Luke, is 23 now. And when he was uh, two weeks old, we put him on a plane and brought him to the Monaco Grand Prix where I was working that weekend, okay? Now, I was 17 before I got on a plane. Um, that was for a bike race uh, in Rome. Um, so that kind of makes me sound like a dinosaur. Uh, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, my career as an amateur showed me the world, brought me to the world. Like in 1984 when I rode in the Los Angeles Olympics for the first time, I spent most of that year living with my brother in an apartment in Paris and riding, racing for a, a big French amateur team. And that was a massive experience, a massive life experience. So I guess the answer is uh, that it taught me about life. It showed me the world. It gave me, it gave me a sense of the world and... Uh, that would be the biggest thing in terms of lessons. In terms of highlights, um, I finished sixth in the World Amateur Road Race Championship in 1985. So sixth in a World Championship is a, is a pretty big deal and yeah. remains my most precious uh, memory to this day, yeah. So as a professional cyclist, how quickly did you become aware of the drug culture within the sport? Uh, Three months, to be precise, um, I went down to a race in near Nantes called Molly en Moulin and uh, quite literally had my eyes, uh, my, <laughs> my eyes opened up um, in the sense that uh, there were no controls this day and uh, I saw for the first time, I was sharing a room uh, with a teammate and um, this is 1980, this is 1986, so again, a long time ago, before there was email or any of that stuff around, or any WhatsApp or means of communicating back home. We were probably having phone calls back then. And I used to write a lot of letters uh, back to uh, my girlfriend and my parents at the time. That was the way of 
of keep staying in touch at home. It was a very far away place at the time, Frank. Anyway, the, the, I walked into this room with my, my new teammate, and I kept my letters in a, in a small little uh, briefcase. Uh, my teammate also had a briefcase, except he wasn't writing letters. I didn't keep uh, stationery in his. He, his was absolutely brimful of pills, syringes, small little potions, and that was literally when I discovered that uh, I was in for a rough ride. <laughs> uh, was the drug issue within cycling the reason you quit the sport? Well, yes is the short answer, although it's probably not the right answer. Um, so I, I turned professional in 1986, and I discovered the drug problem uh, very, very quickly within three months. And I raced for four years as a professional and tried to do the best I could, despite the fact that I was uh, competing in a very uh, uh, difficult sport. And I had an opportunity after, after the fourth year to go into sports riding. Almost out of nowhere, I got a chance to become a sports rider. So um, I left cycling because I had the opportunity to go into sports journalism and to become a sports writer. Had I not had that opportunity or there's every chance I would have stayed on, in the sport for as long as I was able to survive there uh, and until I had another alternative. Was there a moment where you realised your riding could be a source of change in the sporting world? Well, uh... I'm not sure it ever has changed anything. You like to think it has. Um, I mean, I'm doing it for 30 years now, and I've addressed some pretty, pretty big, uh, big topics and important topics. I'm not sure whether anything has really changed as a result of anything I've written. I certainly became aware very quickly of the power of words and the difficulty of uh, of trying to to uh, to bring truth and to write about truth. I mean, the very the third piece. I wrote for, and I joined the Sunday Tribune in 1990, we got a solicitor's letter in about. And then I went on the Late Late Show a couple of months later, just after my book, Rough Ride, had been published, and faced some very uh, difficult questions from uh, Jay Bourne. So I was aware of, uh, of the power of words and the problems of truth. Um, and I would hope that some of the stuff I have written has brought change and it certainly made people think about it in a different way, but whether it actually has brought change or not, I don't know. Uh, what were some challenges you encountered as you began your fight against drugs and sport? Well, I guess, I guess the biggest challenge really is, uh, is trying to bring truth to an audience that only wants truth on certain terms. And by that I mean, so if you're talking about, say, an Olympic Games, and uh, we've got, say, an Irish athlete competing in Olympic Games, and he's competing against, I don't know, some Belgian or British or Chinese guy who, who's doping, and we know he's doping, and I go write a piece saying, oh, look, our poor Irish guy has been caught, has been screwed here because the guys he's competing against are absolute cheats, and we can prove this, and I'm writing about it, so don't be too hard on our boy. And people will love that. They will absolutely. This is a, this is actually music to their ears. This is what they want to hear, and they can accept that. What they won't accept is when you write the piece saying, "Actually, hold on a minute, folks. Our athlete here is not all he/she makes out to be. She's the cheat here. 
And uh, we need to be aware of that. And I'm going to tell you about that. That's when you start... Uh, that's when you realise that uh, you've got a fight in your hands and that uh, it's not always... Uh, it's not always... Uh, it's not always fun. Your strained relationship with Lance Armstrong is renowned among sports fans. At what point did you become suspicious? Well... I became suspicious again. I can be quite uh, specific about that. It was during his fourth Tour de France win in 1999, and people ask, "Well, how did you know?" Well, Lance had been a pro since uh, 1993. I'd been watching him since 1993. He'd been absolutely uh, surrounded by the same drug culture that I'd encountered when I'd been a professional. So the notion that uh, he could win a Tour de France. Uh, six years after touring pro having had cancer and they were clean he was quite frankly absurd so from the moment he came back after that cancer surgery and won that tour it was painfully obvious that he was doping and uh, I wrote about it uh, at the end of that fourth tour in 1999 and uh, kept writing about it until finally he was exposed in, in 2012. Um, sorry. Uh, so when did you decide to challenge the narrative around Armstrong, and how did you go about doing it? Well, again, uh, for some of the reasons I've just spoken about, um, when you say challenge the narrative, and, and challenge is the word, and the narrative was that this guy wasn't just a cycling star, he was a, a, an international icon, a sporting icon, a global icon, and who had uh, millions of fans around the world who were enthusiastic and warm to the fact and looked on, on him uh, as, as an inspiration in the battle against cancer. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't, it was very different to some of the other stuff I'd done and tried to do over the years. Um, but look, again, from that fourth tour in 99, uh, I wrote an opinion piece on it. Um, and then I left the Sunday Independent Dublin, went to work at the Sunday Times with David Walsh, and I helped David. I took a back seat to David David's work on the case from when I joined the Sunday Times in 2002 to 2005, and that was the year that Lance retired. Um, and then I went into the front seat from 2006 when he came back to the sport in 2009. And that, of course, was the scene of the infamous press conference where I challenged him at the Tour of California. So I guess uh, I would say from the get-go, from that very first tour in 99 is when it started, uh, obviously it became uh, more difficult with every year uh, that passed. But it went right through again until, uh, until he was exposed in, in 2012. So um, I would say from the start. Did you ever fear for your career going against, as you say, this global icon? Yeah, well, the bottom line about journalists and journalism is that we're only as good, we can only be as good as our editors allow us to be, okay? So I was very, very fortunate during my time with the uh, with Sunday Independent uh, through the uh, 90s and initially at the Sunday Times that I had the support of some really good editors. Um, and for when you, when you have that support, you don't ever fear for your career because you're getting backing 
and you know that should things turn bad and should uh, should you get a case, a libel case, should you have to file a libel case, should you lose that case, that you're still going to have the support of your newspaper and of your editor. And once you have that support, you don't fear for your job. It's when you start writing stuff that your editor doesn't approve of. Uh, and when things are, com- so things are complicated for me, when I joined the Sunday Times and when uh, Team Sky uh, uh, were formed and started dominating the sport. And the complication was that the Sunday Times and Team Sky had the same owner. So it was a conflict of interest there. And you would have hoped, and I hoped, that I would have been allowed to bring the same standard to uh, my writing about Team Sky as I was with Lance Armstrong. But, of course, it was very different in that there was no commercial interest here. And so I didn't get the support I got during the Armstrong uh, years. And <laughs> I lost my job as a result of that. So uh, that's how it happens, and that's how it works. Again, we're only ever as good as the editors and the newspapers we write for. Uh, that's very interesting. Uh, now I'd like to talk about the story of Floyd Landis, uh, which is very intertwined with the Lance Armstrong story. Your own story with Landis essentially made the cycling world stop and listen. Can you tell us a bit about Floyd Landis and how your now famous conversation with him happened? Well, uh, if you remember the, the timeline of it, so Lance Armstrong's last tour win, his seventh tour win, was in 2005. And the very next year, in 2006, uh, one of his uh, lieutenants, Floyd Landis, came along, and he won the Tour, and he became the third American to win a Tour de France in 2006. Now, I was on that race, uh, and, and covered the race for the Sunday Times, and I remember distinctly standing at the finishing line in Val in Spain, when Floyd Landis took the yellow jersey for the first time. And he crossed the line, and that's one of the unique... Uh, points about covering a sport like focus is how close you get to uh, to the athletes, to the riders. So Floyd came across the line. He stopped about, I'd say, about 20 feet away, and I was I was actually looking at him. And the swanier came over, the helper came over, started telling him down, and I'm looking at him, but I'm not looking at him in the way that you would look at him, or in the way that everybody else, or practically everybody else who was at the finish that day was looking at him. I was looking for syringe marks, uh, the places where, you know, if you know the game and knew how it worked, you looked in certain places. So as, so as Floyd is taking off his shirt and getting sponged down, I'm looking at the places where he would have been uh, uh, using syringes or signs of doping. So that was my first experience of Floyd. Um, he was disqualified at the end of that tour. Uh, about a week after he won... Uh, positive both tests came through and he spent two years fighting that case and then when he came back to the sport uh, he received the ban and came back to the sport in 2009 I was in at the Tour of California when he came back and I remember writing to him shortly after that and telling him that story about uh, Valderon that they had seen him and what I'd been looking for um, and he responded to this and he responded very well and he said well you weren't the only one uh, I was telling lies to. So we arranged to meet, and we met in California uh, at a place where he was living at the time, up in the mountains. Uh, in California, and a shack he had down there. We spent seven hours together, and it was, in some ways, I still think to this day, 
uh, the greatest interview that's ever been done uh, with a professional athlete. And greatest in the sense that if you need to know the truth about sport, and not psyche, but sport, pro sport, how it works, it was all there. And uh, the interview was, I think, about 35,000 words. It was almost half a book. Uh, um, but it's still, it's still probably one of the things I'm proudest of today. And again, I don't, I, I, I don't deserve, I'm not asking for credit for that. That was all down to Floyd, Floyd Landis and his honesty and his uh, willingness to, to dig down and actually tell the truth uh, for, I would say, probably the first time in his life, yeah. Did you feel the interview with Floyd Landis was the official turning point in the fight against Lance Armstrong? Well, I definitely feel that Floyd was the turning point. I'm not sure whether my interview was. I think the interview gave an understanding more about the sport than it did about Lance because Lance, again, was, came through the same sport and, uh, and took the same decisions for the similar reasons that Floyd did. So what the Floyd interview really showed was how the system works. That, you know, there are reasons why uh, Tour de France winner after Tour de France winner continued to dope and that was the power of the Landis interview it actually took the spotlight away from the athlete to the governing bodies and the uh, the way the sport was run and the temptations that brought riders down this road so that was the power of the uh, of the Floyd interview that was much more about really the sport and how sport works and and the problems it has than it was about Lance itself if you had the opportunity to sit down with Lance now, uh, what would you say to him? What kind of questions would you ask him? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a great question. I don't have a great answer. You know, in some ways, I have an unusual... I'm not sure I'd want to sit down with Lance now because uh, anything I've seen of him uh, since, uh, since his ban and in retirement, you, I, I don't see any change there. I'm not sure... He would be, is ready to be honest, would be honest with me about it. Look, I would do it, absolutely. Um, what would I say to him? I actually don't know. I, I'd have to spend some time, uh, I'd have to spend some time thinking about that. You know, um, I, guess, I guess I'd have to ask him. I guess the question I would ask him would be about his son, because he has a son call Luke the same as my son is called Luke and I wonder about uh, his relationship with his son and I'd ask him about his relationship with his son and the fact that his son uh, went to school one day and all his friends were laughing at him because his father was a cheat and he be, had been exposed as a cheat and I'd ask Lance whether that day alone, surely that day alone, it wasn't worth doing what he's what he's done. And he might say, "Well, look at all the millions I have, and everybody knows, and I'm world famous." And I'd say, "Yeah, well, what was that worth it, given what your son had to endure that day?" That, that's probably what I'd be most curious about. Yeah, is doping as rife in cycling today as previous decades? Uh, well, rife, <clears throat> rife, uh, probably not. Uh, Right, probably not. I don't think it's as extensive as it was back in the 90s. Um, but I still believe, I don't think that, uh, I mean, the Tour of France this year, in my view, was ridiculous. Um, 
And I think the nature of it has changed, but ultimately nothing has changed. And by that I mean, I don't think you can win a Tour de France or compete in the Tour de France without having a, uh, a world-class lawyer and a world-class doctor in your, in your team. And that's been shown. If you actually look carefully at the winners over the last few years, they've all got some pretty shady doctors uh, there. And um, so I wouldn't have been in any way uh, convinced that the sport is any cleaner than, than, it, than, it, than it ever was. Uh, the Sport Ireland chief, John Tracy, claimed that Ireland was one of the leading countries for anti-doping. Uh, would you agree with that statement? Well, uh, yeah, I certainly think that they do a better job than uh, most of the anti-doping agencies uh, uh, throughout the world. I think they could do better. Um, but generally, I would agree with that. They do, uh, they do a pretty decent job, I'd say, yeah. Rugby is increasingly becoming targeted for testing in recent years. Would you have concerns for the sport? Well, I have a, I have concerns for every sport that has a uh, that has a pill culture. And by pill culture, I mean any sport where you're using supplements uh, to get bigger, to get more powerful. That has a supplement culture. You would have to have concerns about. Also, it is now a pro sport. It is no longer an amateur sport. So any sport where there's money involved, you would always have uh, you would always have concerns about. And it is not only a pro sport. It's probably the largest pro sport in Ireland at the moment. I think I'm not sure we have uh, as many professional athletes in any other sport as we do in rugby. So yeah, you would have to have uh, you would have to have concerns. What needs to change to solve the doping issue in sport? Well, there needs to be more truth and more honesty. And unfortunately, when you look around, uh, that's still in, in short supply. So to go, come back to rugby, because this is an important point. So if you think back about the last couple of years and what's happened here, you have the Irish Rugby Football Union, and they come out every year with a zero tolerance policy, uh, policy to doping and sport. So zero tolerance should mean zero tolerance, except that when you get Munster going out, I'm bringing in a South African who's already served two-year ban for steroids. Now, that's not zero tolerance. And when you get the Irish Rugby Union, uh, Football Union, defending that, and when you get Munster defending it, and when you get Munster players defending it, then you're on a slippery slope because you can't pretend you're anti-doping and then allow someone who has served the steroid ban to come in and play with you and defend that as if that's okay. That is not okay. And for as long as it is okay, then the sport is not anywhere near addressing what it needs to address. Um, which sporting figure would you admire the most? Well, uh, the person I admire most in sport, you probably have never heard of him, and that's uh, a former European uh, silver medalist uh, called Gary O'Toole, who was a brilliant swimmer back in the, uh, in the 90s. So uh, Gary, Gary is now uh, an orthopedic surgeon, a consultant surgeon in St. Vincent. And he has, for me, he has been the perfect uh, role model for everyone in sport. He went to Olympic Games. He won a European medal. But more than anything else, he did the right thing at the right time. During the abuse uh, of uh, the 90s, when uh, Swimming Swim Ireland was, uh, was beset with some serious problems, 
uh, abuse problems, Gary was one of the few people that stood up uh, and tried to address that and to do something about it. So he takes every single box in what I admire people, his honesty, his integrity, uh, and the fact that he was courageous. So he would be, by some distance, the, uh, the person I admire most in sport. Uh, and after that, I could give you probably a list of the usual suspects. <laughs> what would some of your favourite sports books be? So my favourite sports books? Well, I would say that um, as, a, as a writer, as a sports writer, I'm more interested in, in people and in the way their word, in champions and the way their word, in what goes through their head and what makes them do what they do. So off the top of my head, my favourite sports books would be about people and why they did what they did. So there was a very famous, there is a very famous book on climbing uh, uh, called Into Thin Air. That's about an exhibition, an ex- expedition, an Everest expedition that went tragically wrong uh, again back in the, uh, in the 90s. That's an absolutely fantastic book that I think has been made into a film. Uh, another favourite book is a biography of Joe Namath. Joe Namath is an iconic American footballer who had a really, really interesting uh, and sad life. Uh, and I had the pleasure of interviewing Joe uh, a couple of years ago. But he's, his book, the biography of Joe Namath, that's absolutely sensational. There was a biography of Tiger Woods that came out last year that is absolutely superb. Uh, one of the classic books is Eamon Dumpy's Only a Game about football. It was a very good cycling book called The Secret Race. Uh, Tyler Hamilton did a few years ago. And then recently, uh, and I'm going looking close to the home here, uh, the Richard Sadler autobiography last year was really good. Richard Sadler's book was very good. There's a book about gambling, Tony Ten uh, by Declan Lynch and Tony O'Reilly. That's about the, uh, the danger of gambling, which I think is well worth reading. It's a terrific book. And a book about a, uh, a Belfast uh, professional boxer called Eamon McGee, which won the William Hill Award a couple of years ago, which I thought was absolutely brilliant because it was raw and honest and uh, just very, very interesting. Uh, finally, to wrap it up, uh, what are some personal goals you'd like to achieve with your journalism career in the future? Well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, personal goals... So I'd like, I'd like to be able to continue trying to be the journalism I want to be, to try and do the journalism uh, that I've uh, aspired to for a long time now. And that's getting more and more difficult given the uh, people are not buying newspapers anymore. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not easy. So I just hope that I'll be able to... Uh, now, I don't know how you... Uh, how you identify that or uh, reduce it down to a specific goal. I guess simply to keep on doing what I'm doing. That's, that, that, that's the best way I could put it, for as long as I can. And for as long as I, as I, uh, for as long as it excites me, yeah, I suppose uh, that's, that's what I would hope to, uh, to do it for a few more years, yeah. Uh, well, that's a great message. Anyway, Paul, uh, thanks for being on the show. Uh, okay, really boy. appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. So, thank you very much. Thanks for the interest. Hello. Hi, it's uh, I'm James O'Sullivan. I'm here with Ian McLaughlin. Just for hi, hi, are you lads? 
Yeah, all right. Fine, thank you. So if it's all good with you, we'll go straight into the questions. Oh, yes, straight to the hard-hitting questions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Congratulations on what has been a brilliant year for you so far. Can you give us an insight into your achievements this past summer? And what are your, some of your goals for 2021? Yeah, so this, I suppose this year's been strange for so many people, um, yeah. and athletes included. Um, so the, the year started out, like it's kind of, a, a running year nearly starts over the cross-country season for most of us, so I always consider the cross-country the beginning of the running year for me. Yeah. Um, and it, it went really well. Um, the Irish team went to Lisbon. We medalled as a team in the senior women's. Um, the cross isn't really my strong point in, mm. in athletics. It's always a challenge for me, but I thoroughly enjoy being part of that team because being a, a single sport with just usually me on the track, it's so fun just being out there with all the girls and knowing that every absolutely every single position that I gain or lose could have an impact. So um, it was fantastic to stand on the podium with the girls. Yeah. So that was a really good start to what I would say my, my season was. And with that, we kind of rolled on to the indoor season with an aim of, of having a really good indoor season. Um, mm. And it didn't go as planned, really. So we had a, had a good start. Um, my team went to Albuquerque. We had a, a great uh, training camp out there, raced some races in in um, America, came back and raced some races at home. And the, the plan was to race in, indoors and not travel to the world indoors in China just because it was too far away. But I suppose none of us got that far anyway because COVID came and locked us all down. Mm -hmm. So that was really such a halt to the season. Um, a halt to all of our plans and it really put a question mark over the Olympic Games and we know now that then the Olympics didn't go ahead so yeah it was a strange time but I feel that I was really proud of my, my team and myself and my coach and how we managed the lockdown situation I'm currently living in Manchester so I was stuck here I wasn't able to see friends and family um, my little sister only lives in Liverpool but she's a nursing student I couldn't see her so that was really tough but I think we did great. We just kept our heads down. Luckily, we're in a sport of athletics that we don't need venues very much. We just need mm. a trail. Um, and I live with my teammates, so I had training partners because we were part of the same bubble. Um, so we trained hard and put our heads down, and it really paid off for me. I Really, the highlights of my season and the outdoor season were racing the 800 metres in Bern in um, Switzerland, where I ran my first ever sub two eight hundred, running one fifty nine point six nine. To be the first Irish woman to do that as well was fantastic, and and kind of a monkey off my back because that was a marker mm. that's been there for a long time for me. Yeah. So that was such a huge, um, a huge start to the racing season, the outdoor racing season for me, um, and that was my first race. And then I went on to race in Monaco in the one thousand meters. I placed third there, which was fantastic because it's a diamond league and I was absolutely over the moon to be able to, to finish so high in a diamond league and to and to really be competitive and show the world that that I could be competitive up in the fields that strong. Mm -hmm. Um but also to run the time that I ran, um, a new Irish record and to be tenth on the all time world list is uh I, I probably didn't fully realise it at the time, but whenever I was reading about it after I was like, goodness people were like, Pretty That's big. possibly the best performance of her career to date. Um <laughs> So yeah, it was it was a good start. I had a rocky end to my season, which which was tough. But you know, if somebody had said you'd have um, two Irish records in the the midst of this lockdown, um, I probably would have taken their hand off. So it was a pretty good season, all in all. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So we've been covering the topic of doping in sport. So how much of an issue 
do you think is doping in athletics? Yeah, look, it's something that's um, very topical at the minute <laughs> with um, just only athletes being outed for certain, having certain items in their possession over the last week, I think it was. Um, I think that doping is, rel- is, is prevalent in athletics. It's something that is often at the, the fore of our sport um, and something that I feel that I know that our, my own governing body do a great deal to try to to kind of really challenge it. Um, WADA do a fantastic job of trying to challenge it too. Um, but unfortunately it's there and it's something that's really the being of every clean athlete's career that that's something we have to contend with. It is hard as well because I see the negative side um, of of the sheer publicity that our sport gives to the dopers too because I I was reading an interesting um, series of tweets on Twitter only recently and somebody said athletics does such a prominent job at trying to catch the dopers in our sport that it nearly it nearly does its own self a disservice um, which made me kind of do a second glance because I always think catching dirty athletes and dirty coaches and dirty organisations if that's the case a positive thing for our sport but I do get and I understand that you're athletes yourselves lads <laughs> that it really frustrates me when people say oh athletics is ruined it's everywhere in the sport because I know that's not the case because I know I'm clean and I'm not there competing and I'm making a world final now yes I'm pretty sure there's girls in front of me that are dirty I, mm. like, I can't say for definite I have a hunch that yeah and I would be naive if I didn't think that was the case. But I think it's rife in so many sports. Like, being from a school like Belvedere, rugby is such a huge sport for you. Yeah. It's rife in rugby, but it's not given the publicity that it is in athletics. Um, and maybe that's because we're an individual sport and they're a team sport. I don't know. Um, it's rife in so many sports. And I think it's really a challenge that we all have to face as a, as a kind of sporting body together. Yeah, um, that's, that's just Black Rock, by the way. Oh, sorry. No oh, well, yous are, yous are quite a, a strong rugby skill too, to, is not? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but so I'm, I'm like, it is so, it is so prevalent in our sport. And I think it's only good if we try to catch the dopers. But look, there's yeah. always going to be cheaters everywhere in life. It's, it's that challenge for me as an athlete. And I know you will probably ask how I face that. Um, knowing that I'm toeing the line, that there could be people cheating beside me. Mm. And it is it is tough because you feel robbed of opportunity, um, robbed of medal chances, robbed of positions. Like for for me, tenth in the world is where I finished in Doha. If there was doped athletes ahead of me, maybe I could have come ninth, eighth, mm. seventh, sixth, fifth. I don't know. I don't know. You know, that's they're vital places for an athlete. Whenever you're trying to move yourself up the world rankings and be a big contender in the world of athletics, mm. but. No matter what we go through in life, there's going to be people cheating the system. It might be in school and somebody cheating exam. It might be taxes. It might be skipping the queue in ASDA, for goodness sake. There's always people willing to to do others a disservice for their own benefit. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough thing in life we all have to contend with. And So I don't try to dwell on it too much, but I'm definitely aware it's very prevalent in my sport. Yeah. And just on that then, have you ever felt frustrated competing against those athletes who have doped in the past? Yeah, no, I couldn't say that I remember specifically racing any athletes that have served a ban. Um, I know that 
that I've been at championships where other athletes have competed, competed against athletes who served a ban and returned. Um, I feel like I have raised some people who served a ban for missed tests, which is a whole it's a whole other kettle of fish mm. where you're like you see somebody missing three tests and you think, well that's suspicious. I've yeah. been on on whereabouts since I was. 18, that's 10 years of telling the Irish Sports Council exactly where I am every single day and and I haven't missed three tests because I see that as a duty as an athlete that I have to carry out um, it is very frustrating whenever you see it and, and I don't know if it's the same for you guys sometimes whenever you're watching sports and sometimes whenever I'm watching athletics and I see a world record being run and yeah. the athlete's barely broken a sweat yeah. I can feel a little frustration in the sense that I'm like is that is that too good to be true? <laughs> is that something that um, that 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 is normal? Because I'm pretty sure if I ran a world record, you'd have me on a heap on the ground, and <laughs> somebody yeah. would need to be resuscitating me possibly. Like I've seen myself run PBs, and I'm on my hands and knees after it. I'm not able to jump up and down with joy and run a victory lap immediately. Um, so it it is frustrating, and it's something that I know that. I'll have to contend with for my duration in this sport, be that both an athlete and a spectator in the sport. And that frustration is something that will always be there because being an honest person and being somebody that would never cheat, it's hard to, to fathom why the cheaters would do it um, and to really kind of grasp that they would be okay with doing such an act. But not everybody's like me. Um, mm. So I have to try to not let it taint my, my enjoyment of my sport. Of course. So with that, what role do you think an athlete like yourself plays in the fight against doping? I think it's important um, that every athlete plays a role in this. I play my part on behalf of myself as an athlete, that I fulfill my duty and what I need to do to ensure that I'm clean to win the line and that I've ticked all the boxes that I need to tick. So I've only said earlier there that I've been on um, the Irish Sports Council whereabouts since I was 18. I think it might have even been younger. So that's 10, 10 plus years of being on the whereabouts system. And for anybody who doesn't understand or know what that is, it's a system that the Irish Sports Council set up that athletes check in every single day. So I fill in a form online that says where I am every single day. I am obliged to give one hour of my day that I will definitely be in that place so that a drug tester could randomly show up at my door and they would definitely get me. So for me, I, for example, always give early in the morning because I'm not usually out of bed before 7 o'clock in the morning unless I'm travelling somewhere. So I'll say from 6 to 7, I'm going to be in my house and when the drug testers knock on the door, they'll definitely get me. That's part of my role as an athlete, to, to make sure that I'm available to be tested yeah. and to prove my innocence as a clean athlete. Um, that's just one part I play. I also feel that it's, it's part of my duty to, to feed back to the Irish Sports Council and um, WADA whenever they require it. We sometimes are asked to fill in forms. We're asked to fill in questionnaires. Um, I fill them out willingly and happily because I want to be part of that that process of trying to keep our sport clean. Um, as well, I think as an athlete, you play a duty to to protect other athletes if you saw something suspicious or if you saw an athlete being put in a position that they shouldn't be put in. It's our it's our role as as another athlete and, you know, just, to, just a decent human being to step up and be like something wasn't right and to report that. 
um, and as well to really be a voice for clean athletes. I'm, I'm not really one that ever shies away from being asked the questions. Being asked about doping isn't easy for an athlete because, you know, it can be a minefield. You could say something that somebody would hold you to. Um, and I'm not a pr- very provocative athlete. I don't be throwing things out there. But I'm very happy to chat about things like this that we're chatting about today because I think I need to be a role model for other athletes out there to show them that you can get to, to a high position in our sport and be clean. Yeah. I, I want to be a role model for young Irish athletes, but young athletes around the world that I know I'm clean and I know that, that they can look at me and think I can get to where Kira McGain is yeah. through hard work. You need to be talented in our sport. There's there's no denying that. We're such a gross motor sport that I'm very lucky that I've been given certain gifts. I don't know who it was mm. by, God or just <laughs> evolution, but I'm I have an engine and I have the ability to run fast, but I work very hard at it and I do it clean. So there's so many there's so many tangents on on my role as an athlete and the duty I play in the anti-doping process, mm-hmm. um, but that's just some of them. And and you know we we vote people into um, and it's really important as an athlete to use your vote. Never mind also as as a functioning member of our society, you should get out and use your vote. We're only seeing that in the US right now and and how it's important to vote. Um, but like we vote other other athletes into the athlete commission. They they reflect us and our desires towards the IAAF and towards WADA, they feed back information to them and you know it's important to be part of that whole athletics community um, mm. and to educate other athletes, like I, I help other athletes out if they if they need any advice like chatting to them about, oh I, I filled in my whereabouts and I'm worried about um, how much do you have to fill in or I, I'm worried about what time to fill in my whereabouts are, I'm always more than happy to chat and just tell them my experience and and also to tell them, you can talk to the Irish Sports Council because they're there to help us as well. I always view it as them doing me a huge service when they come to my door to test me. And, and I always thank them for it. Sometimes I'm not that uh, cheery at hmm. 6 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> but I always thank them for coming and testing me. And just as with that, um, a lot of people were wondering, what do you think needs to be done to stop the use of performance-enhancing drugs? Yeah, this is a tricky one, and um, and it's something that I chatted to to my teammates about last night, and a few a few suggestions were batted out. Um, I know that people have mentioned lifetime bans before. That's something that then we had a debate and a discussion about because I think it's definitely an area that needs discussed because I'm well aware that there's athletes that may have taken something by accident. It wasn't a um, a deliberate act of cheating but how do you distinguish between that it's a very blurred mm-hmm. line between the athletes that were deliberately going out and cheating and cheating the system yeah. and quite often as well the whole process of um, of actual testing isn't it doesn't actively tend to catch a lot of dirty athletes um, a lot of us watch people and we were aware of certain people that we could be suspicious of those athletes never get tested and this is the they never get test positive somebody, and this is the thing that they always use. I've never tested positive for a drug, um, but I often think that the the dopers are always one step ahead of the testers because they have to try to catch up and figure out what the what the dopers are doing. I think in the most recent years, the biggest um, ability to catch doped athletes and doped systems was the intelligence system around it. Um, mm-hmm. We saw how the whole system 
um, looked into into Russia. We've seen other major coaches be investigated and the processes be investigated and then realising that they're not carrying out the due process that they should and they may be cheating and blurring the lines of what is acceptable in our sport. And I think that's, that's probably the future of catching um, people who are who are who are willing to dope and who are doping um, as well education is a huge part educating athletes um, about their responsibilities I have been educated since I was a youngster about my responsibility that everything that enters my system is up to me it's my yeah. responsibility it doesn't matter who gave me it I have to check it mm. if my coach gives me something I check it if somebody from my governing body gives me something I check it even, even a doctor if a doctor prescribed me something I check it and, and I may ask them, can you make sure that this is okay for me to take as an athlete? I'm tested. I'll still check it online. I'll mm-hmm. be on to Air Farm or whatever the process is to make sure that that's okay. Um, and, you know, it's so hard. I don't know what the answer is because, as I said before, there's always going to be cheaters in this world in all walks of life. And we're not going to be able to stop those people being willing to, to bend the rules and to break the rules for their own gain there's always it's always going to be there but we can try to to catch them and stop them and it's a constant battle for for our testing systems and for wada um i'm certainly on their side and i hope that they continue to to investigate yeah suspicious activities i think that's the way forward really right yeah so kira thank you very very much for coming on call today um, Not at all, thank you, lads. Everyone here wishes you best of luck for Tokyo 2021. Thank we you. We all hope you succeed and do very well there. Uh, ah, thanks, million. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And, and today. brilliant. All the best for the rest of your day, guys. Yeah, thank you. All the best to you too. Cheerio. Bye. Bye.